if, uh, if I were to write a book, which is never going to happen, but if I were, hypothetically, if, if I were to write a book, the, uh, the, the topic, the subject, would definitely be the conversation that we're about to delve into for the next several weeks. Um, we're, we're calling this Head versus Heart, and uh, if I were to write a book, it would definitely be about this topic. And it is not because I feel some sort of expertise about this topic. I don't. Uh, it has nothing to do with that. It has, has everything to do with the fact that uh, simply this. This revelation um, in my faith journey has changed my life more than anything else. And uh, every aspect of my life, it has been a game changer. Uh, do, do you guys remember uh, pre-iPhone days, the cell phones that we had back then? There was a, uh, a Motorola uh, Razor, and the Crazer came out. It was more narrow, but the Razor was this like metallic-looking, uh, very sharp flip phone. And I got the Motorola Razor, and it was even spelt like edgy. It was like R-A-Z-R. Uh, so cool. And I thought, wow, hello. Uh, man, I thought I was the coolest. And uh, I got that. And it was, a, it was an upgrade from my phone before that, but it was still the same. I mean, it's a flip phone. I mean, what do you want? Then the iPhone hit the world. And for good or for bad, it has changed everything. So the iPhone changed everything. So, so upgrading flip phones, upgrading cell phones, nice, cute. The iPhone, it, I saw a meme the other day, and I'm, I'm, I'm like one of these young cool kids. I'm into memes, bro. Uh, so, uh, but the meme was like it had a rotary phone, uh, a, a, pic, a camera, a computer, all this stuff on a desk, and say, who, who would have thought all this was going to be in your pocket in a few years? Um, it, it, it is a game changer. It changed everything. It continues to change everything. And, uh, and so that's, to me, in a very positive sense, that is how this particular revelation has revolutionized my whole life. It's changed every aspect and dimension of me, how I approach life, how I approach God. And uh, it, it all started, if I'm honest with you, in a bathroom. And uh, which a lot of my <laughs> most incredible, impactful moments, we'll not get into it, but I, I uh, it's weird to say, but um, I, I, I was in a, a bathroom and uh, it was at a, a, a cabin that my uncle had and he had a little cheesy sign. Uh, it was very Christian, all their decor. And uh, they had a little sign in the bathroom that just, it was Proverbs 3, 5. And uh, I read that. And I, I think for the first time, I really pondered it. And so I want to share it with you. This is, uh, we'll start here, and actually we'll refer back to this a lot uh, throughout this whole series. And uh, throughout this series, we're going to be discussing a lot of, a lot of we're going to cover a lot of territory. And we'll, we'll cover a lot of ground. And in fact, this particular series, we're going to also be talking about discussing within our small groups. So I encourage you to find one get involved, lean into this, because I, th- I promise you, this will change things for you, and not because I'm saying it or I'm good at saying it, because I'm not, but, but because uh, the gospel and the word of God is powerful, and, and it transforms us. And so, Proverbs 3, five, 
You've heard this one. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. I, I, I think for the first time, I was, uh, I was standing in the, the bathroom uh, at my uncle's cabin staring at that verse, and I think for the first time, I really, I, I really saw the juxtaposition and the contrast and the dichotomy of what's being said here. Because for whatever reason, so many uh, scriptures that we read and that we recite and that we know of and we memorize, uh, so many of them, they, they, they come off the page and then they are edited as they enter La Cabeza. And so for whatever reason, th- this is probably one of the most uh, notable ones, for whatever reason, when we read Proverbs 3.5, it is edited on the way into our heads. And so it says, trust in the Lord with all of our hearts, and do not lean on our own understanding. And for whatever reason, the words do and not end up on the cutting room floor. And the way that we internalize it and hear it is trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on your own understanding. And I think part of it is the reason that it's, it's edited in our heads is because we want to lean on our own understanding really, really badly. Um, in fact, I would say that's kind of our favorite thing to do. Uh, we really want to figure it out. We want to be in the know. We want to be in control. Jesus, take the wheel, but it's one of those driver ed cars where we've got one too. You guys remember that driver ed car? The, uh, the, the, the driver ed teacher has the wheel and the brake and everything too. And so we're like, Jesus, yeah, yeah, I'm, Jesus, you, you drive. And we're, we're really ultimately in control and not about to relinquish that at all. And so the, the statement is, trust the Lord with all of our heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Um, now, when we, when we read this also, something else happens. We, we start to interpret things not as they're being said, but as we understand them in, in our life experience. And so we interpret this idea of following your heart as something kind of cheesy and emotional and, uh, and, and following your feelings. So uh, I, I've had someone argue this point with me. They say, Chris, um, your, your feelings are not to be trusted, sir. Uh, so, so basically saying this, this, this verse is false. Uh, this is, uh, Solomon has no idea what he's talking about, and you should not ever follow your feelings or emotions over your knowledge, your intellect, and your wisdom. But that is a really bad interpretation of the word heart. Uh, that is a modern uh, uh, ballad song interpretation of the word heart, and it is not at all what's being talked about here. In fact, the Bible says to trust the Lord with all your heart. The Bible says also in Romans 10.10 that it's with a heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. So we need to understand from the onset, what does it mean to trust the Lord with your heart? What are we talking about even with the conversation of the word heart? Well, what's being spoken of is the spiritual aspect of you. The, the internal you, the true you, the real you, 
the spirit you, the part of you that connects with God, uh, it is not, you see, when people say uh, following your heart is following your emotions, following your feelings, no, in fact, your mind is more closely related, your mind, will, and emotions, these are, these are more closely related to your feelings is what's going on in your head, not at all faith. Now, faith affects our feelings, and feelings are beautiful, they're a gift from God, but I, I always put it this way. Feelings are a great uh, passenger riding shotgun, making the trip a lot of fun. Uh, feelings are great controlling the playlist. Feelings are great uh, uh, pointing out interesting things uh, along the journey. Uh, check that out. Uh, look at that. Isn't that billboard stupid? Uh, that's, feelings are great at that. But feelings are not good driving. Um, but a lot of times, that's exactly who we entrust the driving to. And so, but what we're talking about when we say heart, we're talking about our, our faith, uh, this substantial spiritual aspect and dimension of us. In fact, faith is a spiritual connection more than an intellectual destination. Uh, faith is not uh, a, a, a destination of reason and logic and information. Uh, my favorite definition of faith is divine persuasion. I have been won over. I've been captured by the grace of God. It is not something that I figured out and I logic my way into. In fact, practically speaking, a life truly lived by faith means that we are perpetually at odds with our own perception, comprehension, and understanding because truthfully, faith does not make sense. It just doesn't. Uh, it, it does not make any sense. That's why the Bible says, the Apostle Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, which is actually the same statement as Proverbs 3, 5, just said differently. We walk by faith and we walk not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, what you see, what you can wrap your head around, what you can, can understand is not the motivation and the direction and the instruction of our life. It's something way bigger and way less, less obvious to our senses. This verse echoes very well Proverbs 3.5, and it adds movement to it. We walk by faith. We keep moving. We progress by faith, not by sight. Not according to what we see, not according to what we understand, and certainly not according to the world's playbook. The way that the world communicates, this is, this is the way you go about your life. This is, how, this is the recipe book for success. This is the formula for achievement and virtue and, and advancement. This is, this is how you make your life worth living. And the world hands that to you and demands that you adhere to it and will mock you if you don't. But that ain't it. And it doesn't, it doesn't work. In, um, in John chapter 6, there is this very uh, meaningful moment that Jesus has with his disciples. And, uh, and his disciples are, are doing their best, following around this mysterious figure for three years of their life, who has completely revolutionized the way that they approach life. He has revolutionized the scriptures for them. He's revolutionized a, a, a life following after God. Uh, Pre-Jesus, their, their role models were the Pharisees. 
And then Jesus is coming in saying, basically, that, that, that's, not, that's the wrong direction. In fact, we want to be nothing like those guys. And so this is a, this is a big swing for, for these disciples. They're trying to figure it out. And so they ask a lot of questions that we might see as being dumb, but they're actually very good questions. And in John chapter 6, you find one of those questions, and they say to him, hey, Jesus, just let us in on this. What shall we do in order to work the works of God? What, what do we do, though? So I know you're, you're doing cool stuff, and this is right after the loaves and fishes thing, and he's doing some very impressive things. And uh, the question is, so what's our end of the bargain? What are we responsible for? And so Jesus kindly, graciously answers them. And this answer is for you. This answer is for me. And so if the question has ever been along the way, as a Christian, as a person who believes in Jesus, what is my end of the bargain? What do I do? What's my job? How do, I, how do I do Christianity? Well, Jesus says it clearly. This is the work of God. This is work. That you believe in Him who He has sent. Who is Him who He has sent? He's talking about Himself. Believe in Me. And then that's the end of the conversation. That's not bullet point number one. That is not, that is not the first of a list. That is it. It is all-inclusive. It is one sentence, one statement, one directive. Believe in Christ. That's it. And so these guys are trying to figure out what, what, what's our end of the bargain? What's, what's our responsibility? And Jesus clearly says, I, faith, trust me with all of your heart. And then what he, he doesn't say it, but he leaves it, he leaves that, that line blank. The leaning on your own understanding is not addressed because that's not where we're meant to go. We're just meant to trust him with our whole heart. Now, as a normal human being walking on this spinning rock, there is an inclination that pops up. That, is, that, that hears that and reads that, and even though it's Jesus' own words, these are red letters, even though th- this is Jesus saying what we're supposed to be doing, we hear it and we're like, ah, it's just too simple. It's just too, too simple, and, and we don't trust simple. None of us trust simple. I remember when I was converted by the Lord from... Uh, Windows to a Mac computer, and that was the directive of the Holy Spirit. And if you've not seen the light yet, I will pray for you. But um, when when I moved and I was doing some stuff graphically and everything at the time, and, and it was just time, and there was trepidation because I've never really interacted with a with an Apple computer, and I'd always been a PC guy, and uh, and so I I was scared. Anything new and different is scary, and so uh, I had a friend who was. Like, he was the Mac guy. Everything he had was Apple. And, uh, and so he, he, I asked him, I said, hey, so what's, what's going to be the, the, the thing that I need to know? And can you train me? He said, Chris, it is 100% intuitive. It just, just get on there and do your thing. And, I, and this was my question. I was like, okay, 
So say that I want to delete a program. So on my PC computer, you got to go uninstall, and it's a whole thing. I said, how do you uninstall a program? He said, take that thing and put it in the trash can. I was like, no. I, I was like, you're a liar. You're lying to me. You're a dirty liar, and I don't appreciate that. And, but he was right. I didn't trust it because it was so simple. Life is complicated. Life is difficult. Life is, is, is wacky, and there's surprises, and it's never, it's the old bait and switch. It's never what you signed up for. In fact, you, you, you'll, get, you'll be excited about something, and then it, it's very disappointing. And I think people live with this suspicion that it's never as advertised. You, you're excited about something, then you get there, and it's like, this is not at all what you told me it was. This is not at all what I expected. And so you, we, we're always second-guessing the things that are simple, that are easy. And so when Jesus says, I, I just want you to, to trust me, that's it. There's something about that that's ah, too simple. And so what do we do? We suddenly start bringing other things to the party. Like trust Jesus and. Trust, trust Jesus and then also. You gotta. And not only does that become the way that we approach Christianity, it becomes so ingrained in our experience that we start preaching that in demanding that of others. Trust Jesus and. Grace, but also. And so it becomes, that's when Christianity morphs into religion. Religion is all the other stuff. Christianity is just Christ in Him crucified. The Apostle Paul knew 2,000 years later that we are going to have issue with simplicity. Uh, It was the case then. It is the case now. So the Apostle Paul speaks directly to our aversion to simplicity and where that comes from. And this is dramatic, but it's true. And so this is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13, a powerful, potent scripture that we should all pay attention to uh, because it relates to all of us. This is what he says. I fear. I'm concerned. It bothers me. I'm worried about this. Lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted away from simplicity that is in Christ. That is how it works. And again, it's dramatic. We're like, oh, we're talking about serpents and enemies and the Garden of Eden, and this is getting very dramatic. But it's serious. And his concern is that somehow along the way that our minds here, this is the battleground, our minds are going to be corrupted away from the simplicity that we have in Christ. And if it's being corrupted away from simplicity, what is it being corrupted to? Complexity. Things being complicated. It becoming more about 
everything else besides Christ. Paul said, said it famously. He says, I, when I came to you, I didn't come in superiority of speech. I didn't come to be the smartest guy in the room. I didn't come with all wisdom and all knowledge. I came to do one thing, to preach Christ and Him crucified. He says, I have determined to know nothing else. I have determined to know nothing else except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Simplicity. So, he says this. I, I think it's important, and if we could spend the rest of the, our time together going back and examining the, the example that Paul uses, uh, he takes us back to the beginning. He, he, he shows us that this has been a fight in a battle since day one. So we go back to Genesis. So let's do that, shall we? Let's go to the book of Genesis. It's pretty easy to find right after the table of contents in the, uh, the directory of your Bible. And so you, you go in there, Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. We'll, go, we'll start here. This just sets the scene real quick. One verse. Uh, this, is, this is the sin. We all know it. God created the earth and, and man and woman and all that stuff. So, so this is the statement. Out of the ground, the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is the beginning. God created two trees of, that are named. There's lots of trees, but these have spiritual significance. And they have a lot of symbolism as it relates to our modern day life. As much as we don't necessarily think about these things in modern day life, they do still carry a lot of uh, uh, significance and meaning. And so you have the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is the no-no tree. And then you have the tree of life. Now, the Bible says here, uh, as, it, as it reads, that the tree of life is in the midst of the garden. Tree of life is in the midst of a, the garden. That sounds like a generic term, midst. I'm in your midst. That just means I'm somewhere close to you. I'm in your proximity. Uh, but this, the Hebrew word here is way more specific. The Hebrew word used is the word tevek. Let's all say it together. Tevek. One more time. Tevek. You're going to name your next child Tevek. Tevek, get in here. Stop, stop messing around, Tevek. Um, tevek has a very specific definition. It means smack dab in the middle. The word tevek means the center, the middle. So when the Bible says the tree of life is in the midst of a garden, what it's saying is the tree of life is in the middle. It's in the center. Now, these, Adam and Eve did not have drones. They did not have maps. Uh, they, they had no idea. They had no idea what the middle of this garden was. The only one that can define the middle of the garden is obviously God himself. So God placed the tree of life right in the center. Then it goes on to say this in Genesis chapter 3. And uh, we know Genesis chapter 3 is where the wheels fall off. And so we're going to start verse 1 and read to verse 13 and talk about it briefly. This is what it says. Now, the serpent, who Paul referred to, was more crafty than any other beast of the field, which meant the serpent shopped at Hobby Lobby. 
like scrapbooking. Um, he was crafty, more so than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, the serpent said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from that one or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you, can, you, uh, that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one, she's rationalizing. And it's like, that looks, that looks delicious. She took from it, ate its fruit, and she gave it also to her husband with her, and then he ate. And then their eyes were both, uh, both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together. Where did they get a sewing machine? I have no idea. That was the eighth day. God made a singer. Um, Together, and then they made for themselves loin coverings. Next time you're at the mall, ask someone, hey, where do you keep your loin coverings? They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God, which you're hiding from God. That's hilarious. Among the trees of the garden, then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Marco, And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I'm nakies. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman. Adam does something miraculous here. He immediately blames his wife. Then blames God. The woman you gave to me. I was sleeping and I woke up with a pain in my side and a pain in my neck, if I'm being honest with you. You did this to me. It's your fault, ultimately. So uh, this woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and of course I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So, first of all, when, when the enemy, when the serpent is doing his best to coerce Eve to eat from the tree, he, he doesn't ask her or tempt her or insist that she choose him over God. In fact, what he does is he encourages her to choose herself over God. That's the strategy. So when the Apostle Paul says that my fear is that you'll be corrupted away from the simplicity, like what happened in the garden, we need to really take note what happened in the garden. The enemy made this whole experience, this whole thing about her. And then look what happens in her brain. She says, out of her own mouth, the tree that's in the middle of the garden, she says, is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. When clearly what the Bible says, what 
how God set it to be is that the tree of life is in the center, but in her head, the tree of knowledge of good and evil is in the center. Now, these two trees represent two very distinct aspects of life. The tree of life is Christ. He hung from the tree of death to be the tree of life for all of us. He is the tree of life. And, in fact, He's all we need. And He is in the center. He has to be in the center. The tree of knowledge and good and evil, it was all about self. I think a lot of people see this this move to, to disobey God as blatant rebellion and complete disrespect and disobedience. It's all that, but primarily the motivation was narcissism. What caused her to gravitate to that tree was narcissism. It was, I can be like God. I can be elevated. She was already made in God's image. There's no being more like God, but, but it's her own, I can do something in order to become something more. So now we've got the first example of a self-salvation project. This is where religion begins, and it hasn't ended. And I've heard people all, it's so funny, being a youth pastor, I'd had this conversation with kids who, who think they're being very, uh, uh, very um, I don't know, intelligent. And, uh, and they'll say, Pastor Chris, that's what they used to call me, PC. If Adam and Eve just hadn't e- eaten that fruit, I was like, you would have. I said, the, 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 the heartbreaking thing is that they fell. The even more disappointing thing is that after they fell, we continued to do it every day of our life from there until we go home to be with Jesus. It was not an isolated event. It was just the first of many. We all choose the wrong tree constantly. We all choose our own self-salvation. We all choose our own moral ascension. And we all kind of look in the mirror and say, I'm glad I'm not like those people over there. It's it's pharisaical and it's, it's in all of us. It just exists within all of us. It's the human condition. But it's a subtle thing to choose the wrong tree. It's subtle. It's not obvious. After all, we've got trust issues. We all do. So to, to be asked to, to, to just trust God with everything and not make this about our own heroic uh, endeavors is very difficult. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Put the right tree in the middle and trust God to deliver don't put the wrong tree in the middle and expect everything to be riding on your own shoulders. Very difficult. I've got trust issues and you've got them too. And where faith happens, where that trust happens, is in our hearts. Romans 10.10 is where the heart of person believes. And the questioning of that and the, the, the reasoning of that, and the, the way that we bypass and work around faith and trust is the battle that happens in our own heads. That's why Paul, Paul says it. I'm, I'm, I, I fear that you would be corrupted in your minds away from the simplicity. Uh, I 
have, I'm not terribly intelligent. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. We all know that. Uh, but as, as unsharp as I am, this, my brain is, is way overactive. And, and if, if you think of the cliche of the hamster on the wheel in your head, uh, I have that, but that, the water bottle that the hamster drinks from has Red Bull in it. And so this is, this, my brain is way too active. I'm way too cerebral. I'm way too uh, introspective. I think too much. And I know that sounds like one of those things like you had a job interview. What's your greatest weakness? I think too much. It's like a, like, it's like a backhanded kind of compliment to myself. But I, I'm not saying that as a compliment. We all want peace. We all want to experience peace, to find peace, for anxiety to go away, for fear and worry and stress to leave, to live in the hot tub that is just peace. My brain boycotts peace. It doesn't want it. It wants nothing to do with it. What will happen is, right when I'm ready to go to bed and sleep, I'm watching old reruns of the A-Team, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to have a great night's sleep. And I pity the fool who tries to get in my way. I'm laying there, and I'm like, okay, I'm tired. I turn off the TV, and then my brain clocks in. And it's like, hey, Chris, you know what you didn't do? <laughs> Jiminy Christmas, come on. And so I have to then resolve the problem that I was thinking about so that I can go back to, I can find rest. And then right when I get back there, my brain's like, I should have told you this earlier, <laughs> but I forgot. But here it is. Here's another thing that you should do. It's, now it's 3 a.m., and I'm trying to solve the world's problems. I, couldn't, I had all day, and my brain waits till I'm trying to find peace. Have you ever done this? This makes you feel brilliant. Have you ever thought about something, and, and you're like, oh, no, it's a cause for concern? And you're, like, thinking about it, like, i got to do something about that. And then you forgot what you were concerned about, and now your new stress is trying to remember the thing that was stressing you out? What kind of lunacy is this? What are we doing to ourselves? My brain will never let me get to peace. We all want to experience the love of God, rest in the love of God, just sit there, understand it, be conscious of it, live it, embrace it, walk in it. My brain will not let me get there. Because my brain argues with the fact that I'm not lovable. Or it argues the fact that I'm not lovable. And so if I just want to rest in the love of God, my brain will say, yeah, but Chris, you're pretty unlovable. Let me remind you of the people that hate your guts. And there's a long list. That's a whole thing. You know the scrolling at the end of a Marvel movie? Those are the people that hate my guts. So you... you you want to be there. You want to get there. But you realize in those moments, that is not a mental destination. That's why the Bible says that the peace of God 
surpasses our understanding. It bypasses our brains. The Bible also says the love of God surpasses comprehension. It bypasses our brains because there's no... Who can know the mind of the Lord? Nobody. There's no knowing. Faith is a deeper knowing. I had a, uh, a father bring his young elementary age student, child, uh, to um, a quick coffee with me because he was worried because his, his son was like, I don't, I don't think there's a God. And so the father's like, I'm calling the pastor. <laughs> and so we sat down. It would be menacing and overwhelming, and, but I, I, I drink like a yoo-hoo and just try to kind of put my feet up and say, this is casual, this is no biggie. And I, this is all I said to him. I said, hey, do you, know your, do you know your parents love you? I said, he's like, oh, yeah, definitely. I said, how do you know that? And he just stared at the table. And he's like, I can't tell you that. I don't know. I said, but you just know. He said, yeah. I said, that's how I know God is real. And God loves me. It's a deeper knowing than anything up here. I can't explain it. It's a divine persuasion. I've been won over. I've, I've already, I, I'm, it's too, I'm too far gone. He captured me. I'm Jonah. The fish swallowed me. I'm captured. He arrested me. He chased me down and captured my heart. The Bible says, he, I didn't choose him, he chose me. He chose me. And my eyes are open. And now I, I, I can't unknow this. I can't unrealize God. He has me. It's a deeper knowing. Faith is a deeper knowing than logic and reason. Now, logic, logic, reason, wisdom, our brains are not bad. They're just not to, they're not meant to be in the middle. Our emotions, our feelings are not bad. They're a gift. Makes life vibrant. It's the icing on the cake. It's beautiful. It's just not meant to be in the middle. This whole conversation, head versus heart, is allowing the middle, the right tree, to be in the center. The furthest distance that you and I will ever travel is 18 inches from our heads to our heart. It is seemingly impossible in the moment. It feels impossible. To in the moment where things are falling apart and things are not going well and and I, I need God to intervene... To move from a place of anxiety, worry, overwhelmed, stress, to a place of trusting the Lord with all of my heart, that it seems like in eternity get to get there. The elevator moves slow. But that's where we're meant to be. It's where we're meant to live. And I, I take heart in the fact that Jesus, we get this beautiful picture, and I'll end with this. We get this beautiful picture that Jesus had to move from his head to his heart also. And, and it's one of my favorite scenes. It's so vivid to me. And, and we've been talking about the Garden of Eden. This is a different garden. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. And these are moments leading up to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. 
And he has traveled from the upper room, having spent time with his guys. They're moving towards uh, into the Garden of Gethsemane. And they take a moment, and Jesus is like, guys, can you do me a favor? Can you just pray? I need you to pray. And he, he tells him, my soul is grieving, even to the point of death. He's sad. He's overwhelmed. You, you can hear in his words, he's feeling a lot of anxiousness. And he says, guys, I just need you to pray. So these are his his only friends, his best friends. And if you know the story, they don't pray. They nap. The one thing, he's like, I I, I need you this one time. Can you pray for me? And his friends let him down, and they, they can't, they sleep. And it's just such a vivid picture of how easy it is for us as human beings. And we can judge them, but we all get a little selfish sometimes. It just happens. And, and Jesus doesn't write him off and say, well, you're, you're out of my will. No. He's, he's like, we're, we're still good. But it just shows that we're all human and we all get selfish sometimes. And so, but Jesus in the garden, he, uh, he's praying. And he makes this very honest request to his father. He's like, God, if there's any other way, if there's any other option, plan B, C, D, E, whatever you got. If there's any way around this, please let this cup pass. It's a cup of judgment. Don't, don't make me drink this. Don't, don't make me do this. That is all of that. I'm grieved to the point of death. I'm overwhelmed. God, if there's any other way, please let me off the hook here. That is Jesus here. But then the elevator moves, and you see it. Completely different tone. Nevertheless, not my will. Yours be done. This is a moment of being consumed by the thought of what's about to happen to, to a place of letting that go and saying, I, I know what's going to happen but I'm going to trust you. Your will be done. I trust you. It's powerful. It's beautiful. I mean, the Bible describes him blood coming from his pores. It describes him sweating blood. And that is such fear and trembling that the capillaries beneath his skin start bursting and he, blood comes out of his his skin, he's sweating blood. That is overwhelming fear. Overwhelming pressure. And it's not just the physical torment. He took, he's taking in these moments all of our sin, collective, past, present, future, all of our sin, and he is becoming the lightning rod of judgment for all of that sin once and for all for all of us. The Bible said he became sin. He personified sin. In the Old Testament, there was animal sacrifices for each of our sins. There were, there were rituals that we had to do to make sure that we were absolved and forgiven. Blood had to be shed. 
as the Bible describes Jesus hanging from the cross, it, it said that he's unrecognizable as a human. He looked like a slab of beef. He looked like an animal sacrifice. And the Bible says that he was a once and for all sacrifice for all times, for all of our sins. So he wasn't just taking on the physical torment. He was taking on the spiritual torment of everything. He was forsaken at the cross so that you and I never will be. That's powerful. And Jesus himself, he's not a a savior who can't identify with us. He knows what it's like to be in his head. And he knows what it's like to also move to his heart. And in those moments, I think we're given this picture so that we are reminded. The Bible says in Hebrews that we, we should, in, in enduring our race, consider him who endured the cross. Consider him who endured such hostility. Consider him. How do we keep going? How do we move to our heart? By considering the fact that he moved to his heart for us. How do, what's the formula here, Chris? How do we do it? Do we, do we, do we say a little, do we say a little, you know, catchy phrase or do we read a book or a verse a day keeps the devil away what do we do no just this is it we move our we move our focus to the right tree we place the right tree in the middle and we consider him jesus who has done all for us who has who has kicked death hell in the grave in the teeth for us who has died in our place, just to show us that he loves us, just to n- make sure that we understand. The Bible says that the, the, the decrees against you, he took them and he nailed them to the cross, just to show with flair how much he loves you, to make a showing of it. I love you this much. That's, that's how we get through these moments. That's how we have the grace to move from our heads to our hearts, from a place of anxiety, worry, stress, to a place of trust, to a place of peace, to a place of being still and knowing that he is God and reveling in that reality that he loves you, he's got you. This is going to be a fun ride. It's going to be, uh, we're going to cover a lot of very personal and practical ground together um, But I'm telling you, this has been the most profound yet practical revelation in my personal life. And it affects everything. And so I'm excited about taking this journey together.